0: Welcome. Today we talk with Cynthia Franklin about her new book, Narrating Humanity, Life-Writing and Movement Politics from Palestine to Mauna Kea. Taking on pivotal historical moments like the murder of George Floyd and the emergence of Black Lives Matter, the ongoing struggle of the Palestinian people against the ethno-nationalist Zionist state and the fight for indigenous rights in Hawaii, Franklin asks the question, what requirements do people have to meet in order to fit into the human narrative. And what are the possibilities of creating alternate stories of the human that can accommodate individuals who identify more as members of political collectives and also narratives that exceed the normative category of the human? This powerful book asks fundamental questions about the relationship between art and activism. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Cindy, thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start by asking you, you're an experienced teacher, you're an experienced scholar, you've done a lot of work on life writing and biography, you edited a special issue of biography. What motivated you to write Narrating Humanity?
1: Well, I think as someone who does co-edit biography, I've always kind of come at the topic of life writing a little bit sideways and been more interested in ways that life writing intersects with other fields of study. And what kind of conversations can it participate in that it doesn't usually? What can life writing learn from fields mm. such as settler colonial studies, indigenous studies, black studies, university studies? This book project came out of that interest. It also came out of my work in biography. Part of the thing I like most about working on that journal is shepherding special issues into existence, dreaming them up, inviting people to participate in them. And we've done ones on like, cast and life writing, on indigenous biography. We did one on Mount Achaia one Ebony Coletto did on mediation. We've done one on Black Lives Matter. And I've learned so much from participating in those workshops and thinking about the kind of work that life writing can do in terms of participating in movement making. And so part of the book came out of the learning that I've done from those special issues in terms of thinking about the stakes of understanding what does it mean to talk about people's lives
0: you said the word that really is key to me when you talk about the stakes of writing about life and in reading your book it's the nexus of all these interesting historical and political strands and one of the things that I find very convenient about the book is you have these great quotes so I'm just going to read you back to yourself and ask you to elaborate on it because to me they crystallize so many interesting moments and one of these is I posit narrated humanity as a lens through which to study how narratives participate in struggles to conceive human being beyond juridical and narrative humanity, end quote. You use this pair of terms, narrative humanity and narrated humanity. Could you talk about those two terms in tension with each other? What's going on there? They seem so close semantically, but there's a world of difference. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. And I will just say that coming to those two terms took a while. It started just with narrative humanity to capture everything. And then I came up against the limits of it. But what I was thinking about was just the kind of narrative codes and conventions and genres that help us to understand who counts as human and ways that people who are fighting for human rights as a thing that you have to do, even as there are all kinds of critiques that can and have been made rightly so of human rights, but that you have to do it. And a lot of times those arguments require fitting into certain genres or understandings of the human, that you have a family, that you are a citizen, that you are worthwhile because you follow these narrative conventions and codes. And so I started thinking about what are some of those and some of them have to do with self making, being in relationship with others as a family member, being a good citizen, raising yourself up. And so I really became interested in in ways that people work within and against those narratives to say, yeah, I'm in there too. That works for me as well. And then sometimes saying, I'm actually not going to conform to this. I want to think about other ways to be human. So the narrated humanity became for me a way to think about ways to tell other stories about human being and becoming that don't necessarily conform to those kind of accepted genres of what constitutes a human being. And so that's where those terms came up. I then felt a need for a third (laughs) term of grounded narrative humanity. Because I think by the end of this book, I started thinking about the limits of working within the category of the human. And this became especially pressing being in Hawaii. And the movement for Mauna Kea was really taking hold as I was finishing up this book. And one of the things that happened in immersing myself in that movement was really thinking in a serious way about the violence that is done when you isolate the human from other life forms and think about the human as the main thing, (laughs) as opposed to humans in relation with land and waters and other non-human life forces. And so in a way, that was going to be an epilogue for the book. And I really credit the editor, Richard Morrison, for challenging me to Mm -hmm. write another chapter, which I then took another year to do in terms of really thinking about what happens if you actually don't take the human as an isolated category and instead work with a set of norms that come out of indigenous ways of knowing where the human is a person in relation with rock people Mm -hmm. with mountains with water with sky and then what kind of understandings of life happen if you start there.
0: Yeah, you know, you and I have been teachers for about the same amount of time, and I'm following your path in an interesting way because, and you've been there so many times, you know, you're trying to get students to read, and they will say things like, either I can't relate to it, or I can identify with it, right? And you want them to be engaged, but then you wonder, are they engaging with it in a really kind of self-serving manner? And it's exactly that you want to separate them out from that without disabusing them of the stake of humanity. And then one of the last... And interesting questions I had in a class recently was we were doing Judith Butler's work on grievability and a student said, can you grieve the earth? And that to me was an immense insight. You know, why can't we? Or why should we? Exactly. So I think these notions of what is human and on what terms you engage with the human and what you lose, if that's the only optic you have, are all things that permeate your book. And I love the fact that you use so many incredible examples because they really help flesh out the different concepts and delineate the difference between them even though you are so subtle to show that there's a lot of overlap so you you manage to be both very clear and also very accommodating of complexity and so much of it has to do with developing a consciousness that's politically helpful and this is another paragraph that i want to read from you you say acts of narrated humanity that emerge out of contemporary movements committed to intersectional solidarity And abolitionist and decolonial forms of caring community offer pathways to being human that break with narratives of the human founding capitalist and colonial extraction and human disposability, criminalization, and incarceration. And this contrast comes out nicely in another passage, and I'm just going to put them together. Insisting on being recognized as human is not enough. That cannot serve as an end point. You have to attend to processes of dehumanization and how they can be understood structurally in terms of their embeddedness in workings of civil society and to how meaningful opposition to dehumanization requires bringing new worlds into being. And what I like about that is that you scope out from the individual, which is usually the repository of humanity, right? Me as a human being, into these systems that shape our understanding and support certain versions of the human over the others. Could you talk a little bit about how you attach these structural issues as well as intersectionality? How did that seem both more complicated but also more necessary for you?
1: Thanks for that question. I think I'll take it in a few different ways. And one of the things that really got me thinking was Samira Esmir's book on juridical humanity, where she talks about the problem of having to go to a court to prove that you are human. And she talks about the fact that laws, in fact, create the kind of whole distinctions of the human and the inhuman. So you have to go and petition for belonging for a category that the court itself has set up against you. So I was thinking about this in relationship to stories and things like, well, you know, I'm human because I have a family and I love my country and I care about these set of things. And it's dehumanizing to have to assert that you're human (laughs) and you shouldn't have to do it. And it's also once you start doing that, you're just widening an umbrella, like a multicultural umbrella. You're just making it bigger, but you're always going to be excluding things and making room for yourself. And this is really where my interest in Palestine has come into play is I feel like Palestine often became a kind of barometer for testing out these issues of are you just broadening a multicultural umbrella? Because Palestine often cannot be accommodated in that umbrella. And so to make a space for yourself in conceptions of the human that are going to not make space For other groups, and you can identify who those other groups are and think about them. If they're not there, then the work that you've done is not working. And it goes back to the none of us are free until all of us Uh are free, which is kind of a truism at this point or a slogan, but it's also something that's really hard to realize. And I feel like it's a serious thing to keep going back to and thinking, how is this working in relation to that formulation and taking that very seriously? And then you really do need a kind of intersectional mm-hmm. analysis and understanding of who's going to count as human. You can't base your humanness on the dehumanization of others. And that's how things are structured.
0: Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's interesting that you mentioned earlier on in our discussion. Ebony Coletto's work and her dissertation here at Stanford was called Forms of Submission. And it was all about the forms that people had to fill out in the early twentieth century in order to get welfare or whatever. They had to fit into these literal forms and contrive a narrative that was always from a position of being a supplicant within an institutional framework. And then of course Ebony became one of our closest colleagues working for Palestine. So these issues are so intersectional, right? You can't take this abstract notion of forms and institutions. And imagine that something like that isn't happening when the Palestinians, they might be citizens and names in, in Palestine, but they're not really in an institution. They're always there as kind of an outlier. I think one of the things that really helped me was when you actually got to texts. And as I said at the beginning, you have a remarkable set of texts. You analyze, for example, Brian Coe's Fruitvale Station compared to Tenehoussi Coates' book, Between the World and Meat. So which camp, and I know the answer, but I'd like you to flesh it out for our listeners listeners. listeners, which camp do these two texts fit into? And maybe talk about how you located them in that space, but also show that there's a kind of messiness in it and they exceed it to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, thanks. I think that these kind of categories of narrated and narrative humanity, they're not just in completely separate worlds. And in fact, things that at one time are what I would call narrated humanity become narrative humanity over time as they become more established. I'm thinking here of slave narratives, for example, that were part of a kind of abolitionist movement to make a case against slavery. And they were putting in play new understandings of who counts as human. And they have now since become codified and recognized as forms, And so in the book, I start with Zaytun, which is, I think, the book that really works closely with formulas of the human, the marriage plot, the narrative of discovery and conquest, the self-made man individual. It takes those and it's like textbook articulations of them. But in the chapter that you've just asked me about on Coates and Kugler, I think those are messier texts, as you've said, that in some ways are working within established Conventions? I would say largely so. But I think as they're inserting their understandings of who counts as human within those conventions, they put pressure on them and they expose their limitations and they put challenges to them. So a film like Fruitvale Station, which really puts Oscar Grant at the center of the film, and it shows that he doesn't have to be some perfect human being for his life to matter. And I think the film does a very good job of taking a complete lack of interest in the individuals who were responsible for his death. It's just like they are just cogs in a machine. They are just part of the background noise of the BART Station. Mm -hmm. The whole structures at work that are responsible for Oscar Grant aunt's death and I think the film at the same time shows his humanity insofar as he is someone who's like trying to get his shit together he's failing sometimes and he's just going about his life and I think the film asks us to just kind of witness that and see that he's not allowed to just be some guy who sometimes is late for work who's you know selling weed who is maybe not the world's best father is learning to be a father and that is all part of I think what attaches us to him. And it also is something that isn't necessary to prove that he did not deserve to be shot dead at a park Mm -hmm. station. So I think the film kind of relies on these narratives about being a family member, about making good for yourself, about being a good citizen at the same time as it shows that Black people do not have access to those narratives because of structures of racism that refuse to allow them access to those narratives. So I think the film plays around with those formulas. I talk about its use of Oprah Winfrey and self-help. I think it's a running thread through the film that Oscar wants to raise himself up and there's a kind of attention and love for Black women in that film. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are honored and I think they're also shown to be not sufficient. I think that Kugler shows the structures of racism and the gendered structures of racism and capitalism that exclude Black people from the realm of the human even as it's also shown the effort to tell stories that work within those narratives.
0: It, it plays with the genre of the human. It shows Oscar Grant's partial participation in a standard narrative, but then his absolutely real counter narrative or alternate narrative. But the idea of incriminating the system, incriminating the bar system, the cops, the judicial system is in the backdrop. It's not really there to show how the event, the personal and the historical clash together in this really horrible and fatal encounter. How did you play it against the book Between the World and Me? How do those things line up together or seem to separate out at a certain point?
1: I put those texts together because they just are ones that are often associated with the BLM movement. One as kind of having helped given rise to BLM, and that would be the Fruitvale Station. And then Coates, of course, because it's just so widely read and taught. And that is a text that the more I looked at it, the more I felt that it was in tension with BLM as a movement in many ways. And, and the tensions I felt were largely created through its adherence to some of these narratives about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Look at the kind of Kunstler Roman or the narrative of becoming an artist, becoming a great writer. I think that's the very important narrative that runs through that book that is a bit in tension with the Afro-pessimist elements of that narrative. I was initially much more interested in looking at that book in relationship to Afro-pessimism as well as to BLM, Mm -hmm. and that dropped out of my analysis a little bit because it just became too big of a structure for the chapter Mm -hmm. to support. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a way that the book is both advancing this kind of ontological Logical belief in the ways that blackness is criminalized and is put in the category of the not human. But I think that there's also this kind of ahistoricism in the way that it does that it makes a lot of metaphors in relation to weather and the yep. cosmos. And so it almost takes anti black racism out of the framework of history. Exactly. Which I think happens in Afro-pessimism to a certain extent as well. I think the difference between Afro-pessimism and that between the world and me is also invested in a humanism. The mm-hmm. same time That's it's interesting. got this yeah. nihilism to it. And the humanism comes into play in terms of its belief in the beauty of literature and the saving grace and power of literature. That even if you cannot fight an ontological anti-blackness, what you can do is make beautiful art. And you can know this tragic truth. And Mm. so there is this kind of humanism that enters that I think is at odds with both BLM as a movement Mm. and at odds with Afro-Pessimism as a movement. And so it's a very messy text for me. (laughs) You put
0: it so beautifully. No, you really hit the nail on the head. It seems very real at the same time, right? That that you can Mm. see his positionality would be comfortable in that caution because of his celebrity in a way and because of the kinds of attention that he has different of that the way that he artistically puts it together, it seems seamless. It seems to be of a whole piece. And it doesn't seem to have the messiness that you and I and others who are critical of the text point out, right? What he's had to finesse in order to get that. So I'd like to move on to two other texts that are really clear, clearly delineated as different from what we've been talking about. And that's When the World Calls You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors and Asha Bandale and Steven Salaitis and Civil Rights. Because when you bring in that diet as a pair and form that contrast, then your analysis seems crystal clear to me. Then there's no overlap at all. There's such different texts from the two that we've just been discussing. Can you talk a little bit about these other texts?
1: I was interested in following the chapter on the coats and the Kugler with the colors, because I think that text for me is a really good example of a text that is in the interest of a movement. And it is like memoir as movement. It's a story of colors. It's a story also of a movement. And I think that she is, you know, as someone who is an abolitionist, as someone who is not interested in saying, here I am, I'm a good American, too. I deserve to be a good citizen, too there's none of that. And she is really talking largely and first and foremost to queer black girls and to black people more generally. And so her audience, I think is different. And her project is different. And there is a really powerful in that book way of saying that these kind of ways that you have to prove you're human are actually part of set of structures that terrorize black people. And Mm -hmm. so no, thank you. I don't want to be part of those narratives. And that text was a good counterpoint to Coates, who has a very different kind of project. And he as much as says that his son is kind of a literary device in that memoir. But I do feel like he is largely talking to white people in that book and saying, look what you've done. Look at all these shitty things you've done. And it's a book of mourning, I think. I don't want to oversimplify it and say that it's not also a book That can go out to his son and to people who are mourning the loss of black lives mattering, but in a very kind of individual way and in a way that is really about mourning rather than world building, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. Paul is interested in doing.
0: exactly. And I
1: think that with Stephen Salaita's book, one of the things that he does in there is he powerfully shows that not only is civility not the same as humanity, Mm -hmm. but in fact, that civility actually absolutely depends. depends upon access inhumanity and terrorizing people and I think he does that really powerfully and I think he maintains an insistence on a kind of radical humanism he does tell stories about fatherhood and about Palestinian fatherhood that I think both work within and against narratives of family and family as markers for humanity and I think that's a book that is meant to inspire But the dedication is for he who ignites because if colors is when they call you a terrorist he's using this language Something igniting, fighting on fire after he's been accused of fomenting terrorism. And he's like, Yeah, I'm sparking revolution. That's who this is for. And that there is a way that he's reaching out to students, to Mm -hmm. his child, to his comrades, and saying, here's how we can do things. Here's how we can be better humans together. Mm -hmm. Here's how we can tell stories about this. And then even more so in his website after he leaves Mm -hmm. academe.
0: For those of us who know Stephen, I've always been impressed by at least two things. One is his immense intelligence. He's just an incredibly brilliant man. But also how gentle he is. <laughs> gentle, considerate. And when people were looking at the tweets during the whole uproar and saying how he's bombastic and inhumane and terroristic, I said, no, he's morally indignant. This is a man who's been deeply wounded and he's responding in an incredibly human way and not in a destructive way, but almost in a redemptive way. You get the sense that is also finding a possibility of being in the world that's decent, right? When all these things are militating against him and finally he decides that he has another calling and he's a brilliant essayist and he's incredibly funny too. That's the other thing that helps him through things and he helps us do the same thing in that way
1: there's that scene when he's driving his bus and the kids are harassing this little white girl and he mm-hmm. stops the bus and he gets really angry and he says no one on this bus is ugly nobody mm-hmm. calls anybody ugly on this bus i might be messing this up a little bit but i feel like that's what his tweets are it's just an outrage about cruelty violence of any yeah. kind whether it yeah. be name calling or actually killing children as happened mm-hmm. before the team yeah. you know, in those tweets where he was seen as the person who was momenting mm-hmm. violence because he exactly. was calling attention to bombing children to death. So yeah and- I agree with you very much on that.
0: And in the terms of your books too, it's to not say something, to accept it is inhumane, right? That's where we fail ourselves as human beings when we say, think it's acceptable, or that saying things in a grievous, bitter way is somehow inappropriate. I mean, all these things to me are part of your book, right? The demands that we have to meet in order to count as human. When you talk about kinship and you bring in what's beyond human and you write, because from an indigenous perspective, what it means to be human is a story still in the making and one that facing future looks back. I really like that, a story still in the making. There is no clear demarcation between grounded narrative humanity and narrated humanity. As I've been discussing, grounded narrative humanity's hallmarks include an understanding that the human is continuously being made through stories that tell a foundational kinship and interdependency with other than human creatures and land, waters, and sky. In other words, in grounded narrative humanity, It is normative to assume that because the human is not a fixed and finished entity, the human emerges through the acts of narrative humanity that accompany movements. There's so much in there. I'd like you to unpack it a little bit because each and every one of those phrases has so much import.
1: I think when I was trying to think about kinship, and going beyond this category of the human and looking at how in Indigenous studies, people talk about the human in movement spaces. One of the things left out that there is an insistence that things aren't finished. They're always in process. They're always in movement. And Ceremony is a book I teach often. And Hmm. I love Mm -hmm. teaching that book. And I think the opening prayer in that starts you in the ceremony is just about that very process where Spider Woman is talking to the reader and talking to also, to somebody in that kind of opening. And she talks about being part of the story, that you're part of a story that is being made. Mm -hmm. And I think that Daniel Heath Justice talks about that really powerfully in making indigenous literatures matter. This idea that the story isn't God did not make the world in seven days, and then it's finished, but that human being is about human becoming. And so once you have that as the norm, then this whole argument I've been making about narrative humanity doesn't quite work anymore. Because Mm -hmm. built into the idea of the human is that it is still in process. And so that already is blurring the lines between what I've been calling narrative and narrated humanity. And that's why I was kind of looking for new language that would capture that. But also it wasn't enough to say that what I've been calling narrated humanity could then be captured in Grounded narrated humanity, which is what I'm looking at as a kind of more traditional indigenous ways of narrating the human, because I think that what I'm calling narrated humanity accounts for lots of different Mm -hmm. temporary influxes and movements that aren't necessarily only indigenous ones. And I also don't want to homogenize indigeneity either, by the Mm -hmm. way, I'm not doing that in terms of these, you know, each of these stories of human becoming, Mm -hmm. of relationality is very particular depending on what the cultural location is. And so I became interested in thinking about how different movements come together and how different stories that animate those movements feed each other. They Mm -hmm. feed different movements and open up different possibilities. So that's something I was thinking about, for example, when I went to Mauna Kea with Rana Barakat and Yusuf Al-Jamal, and there was a lot of storytelling on the mountain there with people that had been living up there occupying the mountain, and I think that there were just the kind of different lenses that Rana and Yusuf were bringing as Palestinians into that space intersected with, but were not the same Mm -hmm. as the stories that people were telling up there And I think that is a very exciting and generative kind of exchange that happens. Different concepts, mm-hmm. like the concept of Aloha Aina, can open up ways of seeing for people that are also fighting to reclaim their land that they've never relinquished, but maybe working with different stories and concepts and yeah. relationalities.
0: I really love that section of your book. And it reminded me of the, for lack of a better word, the vibe that one often gets in those situations is one of openness, right? I mean, you go into the situation and it's a prerequisite for being there is to be open and to not have a sort of predetermined outcome or a sense of, well, this has to happen for me to do this, but rather leaving yourself open to unexpected convergences. And so much of that has to do with just having good faith in the other people, right? You instinctively and automatically Grant them that possibility before closing it down and saying, well, they have to meet these requirements because you assume a common name. You assume that you want something similar to happen in that encounter. And that's often challenging, but it's also never disappointing in some ways, right? Because it's too easy to go in there with these preconceptions and then you're disappointed because nobody can live up to that. But when you have the kind of fluidity that you're suggesting and you're embodying. It's really powerful. Your book does so much and it's so useful to everybody who's a teacher, especially in the classrooms in the world that we're living in today, where it's so polarized when people feel, with good reason, defensive and wanting to be a member of one team or another. I think your book does the work of asking us to be patient and wait for things to happen rather than insist on them happening quickly and easily. And it's just much more interesting at base. To so imagine that life and humanity and extra humanity, if that's a word, has so much to offer to us if we just shut up and, you know, before we start talking. So is there anything else you'd like to mention for the book?
1: just that I was really happy to have the cover art come from Joy Enomoto And it's a digital image of mm. a lung with a damaged trachea. And I really love the way that she did the branches of the lung, like tree branches that oh. are connected to one another. So there's a kind of rhizomatic movement to the cover and one of both violence, but also of persistence, mm. life and of breath, because also the idea of breath, Aya and the breath and Hawaiian is ea, which also means rising. So this kind of capturing of the importance of breath as something that joins together Mm. humans and non-humans in interdependent ways. And also rising in the midst of violence, Mm. of interconnectivity was something that I felt like the image captured that I was happy to have captured about the book.
0: For our radio audience, you will have to buy the book to see the beautiful cover. And the (laughs) book is called, again, Narrating Humanity, Life Writing and Movement Politics from Palestine to Maul by Cynthia G. Franklin. And it's a perfect book also to be on a podcast called Speaking Out of Place. So the breath and the voice and the discordance is all of a piece. So Cindy, it's always wonderful to talk with you. And congratulations on this really wonderful book that does so much important work in the world. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, David. It's great talking with you.
0: Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu, and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.